Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Heads up, this podcast contains explicit language. In 2006, I was 18 going on 19, one year removed from high school, and I had a front row seat to one of the most notable times in Bay Area hip-hop history, a period often referred to as the hyphy movement. It was an era of up-tempo, bass-heavy music, oversized, airbrushed white t-shirts, candy-painted cars, and big-ass sunglasses, stunner shades. There was exuberant dancing, extravagant slang, and goofy party antics. The granddaddy was purple, the Incredible Hulk was green, and the pills came in every color that Crayola has ever seen. While it's easy to get all nostalgic about the music and partying as a time of celebration and bliss, I'm here to discuss how the culture was fueled by pain. That year, a reported 148 people were killed in Oakland. It's the second highest annual homicide total the town has ever seen. And nationally, it was much the same, as crime, specifically robberies in big cities, increased significantly from the year prior. I think about that. In addition to the folks who I knew who were lost to substance abuse, people who were sent to jail or prison, families who lost homes, careers that were ended, and lives that were forever changed. Yeah, there's more to the story of the hyphy movement than just going stupid. I should know. I was there. The date on my LG flip phone reads January 26, 2006. I'm staring at the digital screen, posted in the lobby of this fancy-ass hotel in downtown San Jose. Business casual attire means that I'm sporting the same button-up collared shirt, baggy khakis, and Steve Madden shoes that I wear to funerals and club functions. But today, I'm at a journalism gala. I'm a baby reporter, 18 years old. The beard hasn't connected and the hairline hasn't receded. Folks are all dressed fancy and eating tiny sandwiches. This is journalism? I'm with my folks from New America Media's Youth Outlook Publication, a nonprofit that helps young writers get their foot into the journalism world. I'm in the right place to be, but still kind of nervous. So in the middle of all the lobby chatter, I'm tucked off hiding behind my illuminated screen of my phone. No games on that joint, no social media or internet browser either. I'm just messing with ringtones and reading old text messages. And then... A new message from my partner, Malcolm. They killed Will. 
After a quick call for further clarification, I hang up and I throw my phone. Quarterback, Hail Mary style. Chuck that motherfucker smooth across the room. The phone was okay. I broke. I leave the event in a drunken blur and I get a ride back to Oakland with some coworkers. Yeah, drunk at 18. But what does that mean? I mean, I'd been smoking and drinking since middle school, around the same time that I met with E. Clay. We were classmates, and outside of school, we kicked it at the Manzanita Center, a youth center on East 28th Street in East Oakland in a neighborhood we call the Dubs, or Murder Dubs. Will was a part of a circle of folks who hung out there, played basketball, rode scooters. Y'all remember those razor joints? He loved those, and the motorized ones too. We used to smoke, shoot dice, rap, crack jokes. He was a funny dude who loved the neighborhood. And the last we talked, he had a baby on the way. Life changed that day for me and a lot of folks in my circle. And that was just one day in the midst of a year that would bring me and my friends some of the highest highs and lowest lows, leaving magnificent memories and deep-seated scars. A few years ago, I was bending corners around town when I saw a couple of words written in aerosol spray on a wall underneath an overpass. Hyphy kids got trauma. Bingo. Say less. That's the untold story. Our story. My story. There was a lot of pain and grief intertwined in that era. It was the catalyst for the exuberant lifestyle. It made us party more aggressively gig harder, roll fatter blunts, buy bigger bottles, stunt with all four car doors open with the RIP memorial pamphlet on the dashboard of the Buick. Ecstasy pills were popped like vitamins, and goofy glasses, they masked the weight of the reality we were facing. And somehow, that's all the outside world saw, that goofy shit. So in this podcast, I'm going to bring you into the real meaning of the word hyphy, and why we dance a little different talk about where the media failed us, and we'll show you what grew out of the pain. I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, and this is Hyphy Kids Got Trauma. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me 
supporting the programs they love, while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. On March 7, 2006, legendary Oakland rapper Too Short teamed up with super producer Lil Jon to drop the hit song, Blow the Whistle. Stupid slap, a bass line that could awaken gargoyles with energetic drums and a catchy hook. It was a union of Atlanta's popular crunk sound with the Bay Area's hyphy wave. The very next week, on March 14, 2006, legendary Vallejo rapper E-40 dropped his album, My Ghetto Report Card. The lead single, Tell Me When To Go, was also produced by Lil Jon and featured fan favorite East Oakland rapper Keek The Sneak. Drums sounded like two kangaroos kicking a trunk of your car. The hook, simple, catchy, and cool. The beat was another up-tempo marriage of crunk and hyphy, and it also made for a classic track. Those releases were just the tip of the iceberg in a year that brought about some of the most notable hip-hop and R&B songs from our region. On a given day, I'd ride shotgun in my friend Scraper, blasting San Francisco rappers Messi Marvis San Quinn. We pull up next to a classic Chevy van, custom designed with flat screens and a headrest, sound system knocking East Bay rappers The Jacka or Bathgate, EA Ski or Mr. Fab. We'd pull up to an event and the DJ would be spinning one of the mega hits by The Pack or Keisha Cole. I'd dip out early, hop the Bart turnstile, and put my headphones on, listening to Zion I or Guapale. There was a bunch of music to pull from, but for me, the track that kicked things off in 2006 was a song called Turf Up by an artist named Bita Weeda. Bita Weeda is a neighborhood star, a fly dresser, but not overly flashy. A dark-skinned brother with deep waves who knows a little bit of everybody. He's a rapper and a producer, as well as an owner of a clothing brand and a line of cannabis. Back in 2006, he had just released his first studio mixtape called Homework. In a subsequent album, Turfology 101. The album's lead single, Turf's Up, got radio play, and the video had a slew of cameos. The remix featured an all-star lineup from that era, including Too Short and E-40. The song is an up-tempo, braggadocious track, something to dance to, ride to, throw your neighborhood up to. For Bita, he was simply putting his real life on wax. We was youngsters, we couldn't get into the club and shit like that. So, like, we would just get in the car, get alcohol, just ride through the East all day, try to knock bitches, you know what I'm saying? And just, the East was our playground. We turned into, like, a club on wheels, you know what I'm saying? So that's basically what the song was just about. I was just talking about the shit that we'd be doing out here. And, you know, the shit just, like, took off, bro. The album also featured a few songs that spoke to the trends of the time, like Ripper Slippers, 
You remember the ripper slippers? That was the shoes that all the little females would get from the uh, the beauty supply shit, the Chinese slippers. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like everything that literally was going on in the culture. I was just explaining shit, just, you know, letting people know how we was getting down out here. You know what I mean? Beta was painting pictures of how folks were living, from partying to pimping and even the more militant mindset. On his homework mixtape, Beta Weeda dropped this one song that spoke directly to that radical ideology that so many young folks have here in the Bay. The track was simply called, We Ain't Listen. That was just the energy of Oakland. Like, we was the young niggas, that's what, we, what our whole mentality was. We wasn't listening to shit. A mixture of revolutionary spirit, cool player shit, and mob mentality, the track exemplifies a lot of the elements that were going on at the time. I was just expressing, you know, what we were going through and just giving the world a light on what we got going on. Because I always felt like Oakland was different. We was different. You know what I'm saying? I knew it was something different about us. You feel me? And I kind of just wanted to share that with the world. You know what I'm saying? He's right. Oakland was different. It was an epicenter of culture, caught in an upwind of creativity. And in 2006, at the same time, there were plenty of reasons for young folks in the town to ignore every single word from authority figures. Oakland had long been under-resourced and over-policed. Families were facing predatory housing loans and rising rents. After decades of constant growth, the 2000 census marked the last time the black population in Oakland increased. I had homies move to Antioch, Las Vegas, and Texas. I started seeing more white folks jogging through the hood. It was the onset of gentrification. Mayor Jerry Brown was focused on redeveloping downtown, adding thousands of new residents and cracking down on sideshows, the illegal car shows native to the Bay Area. I watched as downtown changed and new people came. Things shifted, but the sideshows remained. The police department, then entering the third year of a mandatory federal oversight, had its own issues. I saw conflicts of all types, people in my family struggling financially and people close to me going to fight in the war on terror overseas. And personally, for me, the biggest conflict was the community violence. That left the deepest wounds. Just weeks after my friend Will was killed, Beta Weeda released his first project, and his music helped me get through that hard time. Hard for me, and arguably harder for Beta, as he not only knew Will, he was one of the last people to see him alive. Man, you know, I always say, bro, it was crazy, bro. I, I was supposed to be dead, bro. That day, Bita Weeda and a crew of folks are coming back from a performance at a party in Chico, a small town about three and a half hours north of Oakland. Rich in agriculture and full of nature, it's a college town that sits at the northern end of the Sacramento Valley. A drastic difference from Oakland. So we slide out there. We had hella fun, did hella promoting. And I'll never forget how it was, like, because it was hella of us from the hood that went out there. And, like, just how much fun we had, bro. We didn't have to look over our shoulders, uh, none of that shit. You know what I'm saying? But Bita says that after they left and made their way back to Oakland, that energy shifted. Bro, it was just like a it was dark ass cloud. It just got dark. And then I never forget, like my um my big bro, he was in the front. He's like, all right, we back in the shit. You know, y'all keep y'all put your head on the swivel. You know what I'm saying? Y'all know what time it is, you feel me? The crew pulled back into Oakland and Beta kicked up at a spot in the dubs. He gave a friend a haircut, and then he realized it was getting late and he didn't have his car, so he called another friend to give him a ride across town to his lady's crib. 
So my homie come pick me up. Boom, he come pick me up, take me to the West. I'm hella tired because we was just doing hella shit. I had been up all night from being in Chico and shit. Instantly pass out, right? My phone died. You feel me? So my phone go off. You know what I'm saying? I wake up in the morning. I turn my phone on. As soon as I turn my phone on, my shit ringing. You feel me? I answer it. You feel me? Like, nigga, where you at? Woo, I'm like, bro, I'm good. And I just remember the nigga was like, man, everybody dead. I'm like, huh? Everybody dead? A short period after Bita left the neighborhood, someone came to the main intersection and started spraying bullets. Five people were hit in total. Will and another brother by the name of Jay Black died. Before the shooting happened, and before Bita left the hood, he saw Will on the block. And i never forget the look on Willie's face when I drove. Like, I just looked at him. You feel me? Like, i never forget that shit. You know what I'm saying? He was standing on the corner. I don't know. And I just looked at him. You know what I'm saying? We looked at his, I don't know. It was weird, bro. But i never forget that shit. And, you know, i just be tripping off that shit. Like, you feel me? Like, I could have been, if I'd have been up there a little bit longer, ain't no telling. You know what I'm saying? As all of this was happening, Beta's music was blowing up. Behind the scenes, he was working with Tajay of the legendary Souls of Mischief hip-hop group. They're a branch of the Almighty Hieroglyphics crew, the folks who brought you the song 93 Till Infinity and one of the most well-known logos in hip-hop. Tajay is a slim, brown-skinned brother from East Oakland who can get loud when it's time, and most times, he has a calm aura that makes sense once you learn that he's trained in martial arts and is a full-time architectural designer. Back in 2006, he had been in the rap game for over a decade and was looking to put other artists on. Beta Weeda's music, specifically the song We Ain't Listening, caught Tajay's ear. It just sounded scary, like, man, oh, wow, this is this sounds like, um, like, if you listen to this song, it sounds very tribal, like, hey, hey. It's just like um, when you think about rap music and you think about the the stereotypes about it, it's, it's, it's scary Negro music from the inner city. That song exemplified that. Tajay says that the fear factor was a driving force that made the song powerful. Like, obviously it was music, but it was scary. And that's, I think, what I liked about it. You know what I'm saying? I felt like a suburban kid almost like, what is this? Ooh, this is what those Negroes are talking about in the in the inner city. You know what I mean, though? You say scary, but you say it with a smile on your face. Oh, yeah, because I'm, I'm black and I'm from the inner city. Like, so I know it's just young niggas letting off steam musically. You feel what I'm saying? Though? But that's really what hip-hop is in general, rapping. Like, we just rapping, you know what I'm saying? So, to me, it exemplified the same the same feeling that maybe, you know, uh, Raising Hell or uh, Rock Box or something. You know, or, or uh, it's like a jungle sometimes. Like, it exemplified that spirit of there's a whole other world out here that you are not being exposed to, and we're going to make it sound beautiful over music. A few weeks after the release of Beta's first project, there was another shooting in the dubs. Bullet holes rattled Beta's custom-designed van. No one was injured, but the shooting left holes in the image of Beta's album cover that wrapped the vehicle. The incident pushed Beta, Tajay, and Beta's manager, J-Mo, to put a plan into play. Tajay and the Hieroglyphics crew own a building in East Oakland, a few miles from the dubs. Tajay invited Beta to start using that space as his home base. And once Bita had a foot in the door, he started bringing in other artists from the community. Once Tajay started seeing the talent, he could have been on some like, nah, Bita, you doing too much. You feel me? Like, just you. He opened up the whole motherfucker downstairs for us and was like, fuck it. Y'all can have this shit down here. You know what I'm saying? 
And like that whole situation, like basically sparked a lot of careers. Tajay saw the Hyrule building as more than just a recording studio for the East Bay's emerging talent. It was almost like an anti-violence initiative. I mean, literally, this place was so active that crime went down in the dubs. You feel what I'm saying, though? Because all the criminals was here recording records. You know what I'm saying? Like, for real, though. You know what I'm saying? No, I mean, you know, all, all, all the factors was in here uh, <laughs> making music. You know what I'm saying, though? The roster of folks who came through those doors and made music and or contributed to the culture included Filthy Rich and DJ Fresh, Moses Music, Big Hungry, and Jay Stalin, Shady Nate, Tower, and the late Zoe the Roaster. It's where, a few years later, D'Lo would record and film the video for his anthem, NoHo. It's where I would eventually work with Jamon Drew and Young Gully to record the Grant Station project, dedicated to Oscar Grant. It was these artists who contribute to Bay Area hip-hop for the next decade plus, making hyphy songs as well as mob music, underground hits, selling thousands of records, and rocking shows across the country. These were dudes from the neighborhood, making music to express pain, celebrate life, and document culture. But nationally, that wasn't the narrative. The way the Bay Area culture was being depicted wasn't exactly what was happening on the streets. Yes, there was some goofy dances and some funny fashion, but man, it was so much deeper than just going dumb on top of cars. If you ask Tajay, that rebellious, hyperactive energy is really in our DNA. Mean mugging and all that kind of stuff. and You know what I'm saying? Shaking your dreads and all that. To me, it was a very African vibe. You know what I'm saying? No, dancing hard. You know what I'm saying? No, very, very within the lineage of the diaspora. Like, I can you know see what I'm that. Saying, I can see that. So, kind of like how breakdancing is or popping or all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? So to me, it was more tribal. Like, and this is how our, these are our tribal dances that we do out here in the Bay where we are the hyphy tribe. And the people of that hyphy tribe, we were at war, fighting against club security and local police, fighting against East Coast hip hop biases and corporate run radio stations and culture vultures, fighting against other community members, and sometimes even fighting against ourselves. We're talking about a generation of kids who were born into the crack cocaine induced era of the war on drugs and raised by people who saw civil rights leaders slain. There were already issues here, as Tajay reminds us. The trauma pre-existed the hyphy movement. And I think the hyphy movement helped to free up and help people to unpack, or at least evade a little bit of the trauma. We didn't know it at the time, but that unpacking of generational trauma was unfettered joy while dancing off a pill at a gas station or driving on the wrong side of the road while listening to your favorite song at a high volume. For me, it was smoking and drinking as if every day were the weekend. It was pills and syrup. It was parties. It was riding around with my partners, hanging out the window of the sunroof of this plum-colored Sebring that I got from an auction, having fun, despite all of the danger and despair. Maybe we were numbing ourselves to get through the trauma. Maybe the hyphy movement kept us alive. Whatever the case, the dichotomy of that era, specifically the year 2006, left a mark that I can never erase. And I'm not the only one. Just ask Bita. You hear about how the murder rate was so high, how that was like one of the worst years of Oakland. But bro, I had so much fun. Like, 
Like, it didn't seem like that. You know what I'm saying? And it seemed like I was around all that. You know what I mean? It just seemed like a lot of love. Like, yeah, we had our ups and downs. We was broke. You know what I'm saying? But we didn't care. We all took care of each other. 06 was very special, bro. Maybe it was that contrast that created the fun. How life and death happened all at once. It made it memorable for us. And unfortunately, only a portion of that story was told until now. On the next episode, we go deeper into community and culture, the year 06, and why we dance a little different. We're not hyphy dancers. Hyphy was kind of like the energy, the, the spirit, the movement, but you know, turfing is how we was able to separate ourselves from the energy. You know, we was turf dancing, we wasn't hyphy dancing. This is Hyphy Kids God Trauma, hosted by me, Pendarvis Harshaw, produced by Maya Cueva, edited by Chris Hambrick, Sound design and mixed by Trackademics, with support from Eric Arnold, Jin Chien, Holly Kernan, Victoria Malion, Marisol Medina Cadena, Gabe Maline, Jorge Olivares, Delincey Parham, Cesar Saldana, Sarah Cavedo, Katie Springer, Nastia Voinovskaya, and Rice Stottenborough. This project was produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. And this is a part of KQED's That's My Word project, a year-long exploration of Bay Area hip-hop history. Find more at bayareahiphop.com. R.I.P. Will, Jay Black, and so many more. Until next time, peace. Hey, what's up? I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, the host of KQED's Right Nowish podcast. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.